0: Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 5, beginning with the first verse. Listen, will you, for the word of God as it's proclaimed through these words of the evangelist John. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called in Hebrew beth which has five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Stand up, take your mat, and walk. At once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. Now that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been cured, is it the is it is the sabbath it is not lawful for you to carry your mat but he answered them the man who made me well said to me take up your mat and walk they asked him who is the man who said to you take up your mat and walk now the man who had been healed and did not know who it was for jesus had disappeared into the crowd that was there Later, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, Jews started persecuting Jesus because he was doing such things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is still working, and I also am working For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, thereby making himself equal to God. The word of God for the people of God So many of you know that I was in Kansas City this past week at a gathering of folks from all over the country representing every annual conference in our denomination. There are about 600 people there. And I was assigned to sit at a table with Grace Matthew, a woman from Kenya who pastors a church in Illinois. Very, very progressive, um, very biblically grounded Also at our table was Sarah Garrard, a young 30-ish woman who sports a shaved head and a shock of bright blue hair and is a fully out uh, partnered queer clergy using language that she embraces. She serves Old West Church in Boston. And then there was Myron McCoy, who I have met before, he was an older African-American pastor who is at Chicago Temple, a church known for its progressive and activist stance in the heart of Chicago. None of these folks agreed on everything. They really represented kind of the wide diversity that is our church um, in the United Methodist Church, our our progressive and moderate kind of church uh, of Methodism. Each of them had a different perspective on how we should move forward as a denomination. For one, the emphasis was on retaining the global church. For another, it was about creating something brand new immediately and at any cost. For another, there was no question we should move slowly, increase our resistance, and reform the church from within. We disagreed on how to move forward, but we definitely agreed along with the vast majority of the 600 people that represented churches there that we would not abide by the traditional plan. And we definitely agreed on what was at stake. Grace, grace is at stake in this pivotal moment in the United Methodist Church. Will we, as United Methodists, continue to put our doctrine of grace at the center of our identity? Or will dogma, rigid, unchangeable, exclusionary dogma, become the theological center of United Methodism? Grace. It's a word that we use all the time as United Methodists. It's bigger than forgiveness. It's bigger than compassion. It's bigger than love. It includes all of those things. We believe grace is everywhere. It's atmospheric, if you will. It's available to us all the time. Even before we acknowledge our need for grace, we believe grace is unrelenting. Through grace, God pursues us, and by grace, we are brought into a real and authentic and vital relationship with Christ. And we believe that grace changes us and continues to form us as we grow more and more into the likeness of Christ and into our true nature as revealed in Christ. It's like what happens when you take a kernel of popcorn and you hold it over the heat. It eventually pops. It becomes something it has always had the capacity to be. That's the way it is when we allow ourselves to receive the grace of God, our lives, pop open in radical ways and we become more and more christ-like it's something grace is something that makes our lives pop open in beautiful ways it frees us from our guilt it liberates us from all that holds us hostage it allows us to embrace the beauty of who we are in god's eyes It gives us hope when things seem hopeless, and we have to receive it. We have to receive it. Our text this morning is a story about how the grace of God was received by a person and how his life was changed. It's an interesting story because if you pick up any modern translation of the Bible, you'll see that the text jumps From verse 3 to verse 5 it skips verse 4 it's just not there but usually there's a footnote that indicates some translations like the King James Version include a verse that says the following for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well from whatever disease that person had that's the verse that's missing from your bibles apparently there was this belief that god's angels troubled the water imbuing the water with healing power the king james verse the king james version includes verse 4 because it relied on older more recent manuscripts manuscripts from about the fifth century which were 400 years after the death and resurrection of jesus 300 years after the gospel of john was written so it was clearly these were late manuscripts but since the fifth century lots of other manuscripts have been discovered and all of them were earlier manuscripts closer to the time the actual text was written none of these earlier manuscripts have this verse four so modern translations don't include it because scholars now believe verse four was not in the original text we can only guess why it was inserted but i think we can guess actually rather accurately why it would not have appeared in the original text it's antithetical to the love and grace of God that is given without condition, it leads us to believe that only occasionally God would stir up the waters of healing in our lives. And if you get there first to the pool, then you can have access to that healing. It makes the claim, you see, that God's grace is selective and occasional. But when Jesus encounters this man, he disregards the water altogether. Jesus asks the man, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be healed? And then he simply says, get up. Get up and walk. It wasn't about a specific location for healing. It wasn't about a specific moment for healing. It wasn't about being first in line. It was simply about this encounter this man had with Jesus, Jesus who is the embodiment of grace. Jesus said to this man, if you want healing, you can have healing. No reference to, be, to being healed by faith. No reference to this man actually seeking Jesus out. This man had an encounter with grace. Now, I don't believe this text is about a magical act of restoring somebody's ability to walk. But it is about restoring a person's hope. For 38 years this man had no hope what he didn't realize is that the power of healing is always available God never withholds healing grace God is always generous and abundant with grace God is not selective and occasional with grace but is always troubling the waters of healing, and they're flowing all around us all the time. It's not about waiting for the rules and rituals that allow us to receive grace. We don't have to be first in line. Let's be clear, Jesus was upsetting the dogma, the right belief of his day. There were rules about who received grace. There were rules about who was in and who was out. There were rules about who could speak and who could not. There were rules about when healing could be offered and when it could not. There were rules for eating and speaking and healing and cleanliness and clothing and all manner of behavior. There was dogma, rigid Unchangeable, exclusionary, dogma. So after this man took up his mat and walked away, he encountered a dogmatic resistance to changing the rules. The religious leaders that he encountered after he was healed, after 38 years, they didn't exactly jump up and down praising God for healing they didn't express their joy at this guy's healing they told him the rules of the day required that he put down his mat you don't do that on the sabbath it's not lawful for you to carry your mat on the sabbath that's dogma not grace jesus rejected dogma jesus embodied grace there are no rules around when or how healing grace can be received and there are no rules around who receives that grace jesus was always challenging the boundaries of grace boundaries imposed by dogma and the orthodoxy of his day So here's my question. Why did this man lie by the pool for 38 years? I mean, I know he was sick. I know he was not well. I know he needed healing. But day after day, he tried the same strategy. And then he made excuses when it didn't work. Someone stepped in front of me i have no one to put me in the water. Friends, for more than 40 years, the United Methodist Church has been lying by the pool, waiting for the rules to allow our church to be healed of its injustice. We've made all kinds of excuses for our condition. We have tried to be patient. We have waited our turn. But listen, here's what I think. Jesus is standing in front of us, asking us the same question he asked the man at the pool. Do you want to be made well? The path is not to wait for a new iteration of dogma. The path is to dive into the waters of grace, trusting God's wisdom and God's grace, because that's what will sustain us. Now's the time for courage. Now's the time to risk all we know for what we cannot yet see. Now is the time to stand on the promises of God's grace, grace that will hold us and heal us, because whatever strategy or multiple strategies that we employ in the coming months, we will not have any part of the traditional plan. Grace cannot be controlled or contained by any dogma or anything that our general conference tries to impose on clergy or on churches. Grace breaks us open. And compels us to share our faithful witness so now is a time for us to recommit ourselves to this community of faithful witness to hold each other over the fires of God's grace so that we can fully become who we have always had the capacity to be The other night, I was conducting a wedding. It was very small. One of the brides had her parents in attendance. One of the brides did not. Both of them were ready to make a lifetime covenant with one another. And to do that, acknowledging God's love for them and relying on God's grace to sustain them in their vows. Their marriage was an act of deep love. It was also an act of resistance to any dogma that would say otherwise. The moment was drenched in grace. Absolutely drenched in grace. And you were there. You were there. You were beside me and around me. And your voices and your witness filled the room. Filled the room. Because you have promised to show up to be her people, this young bride whose parents didn't come to her wedding. You were there. We have promised to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. And so it is that we will, together. May it be so. Amen.